This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Hussein, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change at the Wharton School, and we're joining you via Zoom at the, at the university while it remains closed. We're hoping to open a course like many universities in the fall in some kind of uh, hybrid form. Today, though, we have, um, well, we actually don't have my co-hosts, Anne Greenhall and Jeff Klein. They're off. Uh, But we do have a special guest who works with the conference board, a very large and uh, uh, historic organization that goes back many decades. It brings in about 1,200 public and private companies as members. The conference board uh, conducts uh, just a range of research studies. It provides all kinds of conferences and seminars. It's uh, to the public very well known for its U.S. Customer Conference uh, uh, Confidence Index, U.S. Consumer Confidence Index. And today we have Paul Washington with us, who is executive director of the conference board's Environmental, Social, and Governance Center. Paul, it's great to have you here on the program. Great. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Mike. And just to remind uh, listeners, our agenda, of course, is leadership in action. And Paul, we're going to focus in on the board, which is often seen historically as an overseer and not an active player, as a person, as a group that monitors, but does not actually lead the company. Thinking on that, of course, has changed in recent years. Uh, partly because of the conference board, the business roundtable, and number of groups that have jumped into the fray, urging directors to take a more active role in thinking about climate change, or today, social justice. Mm-hmm. So, Paul, we're going to uh, just um, plunge right into those uh, terrains with you. Uh, you've got a background, just to let our uh, listeners know, uh, with Time Warner, where you uh, worked as a uh, senior VP, in the general counsel's office. You have a law background. In fact, I noted that you had clerked for two Supreme Court justices along the way. So, Paul, let me just start with uh, a term that kicks around often abbreviated ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance. You run the center for that at the conference board. And tell us just a little bit about what that means, what you do, and what you're encouraging companies to think about in this general terrain. Sure. Let me talk a little bit about the term ESG. Um, Then I'll talk a little bit about what we do within the ESG Center. So the term ESG actually comes from a UN report about 15 years ago, where companies uh, and other stakeholders got together and determined that Um, the long-term performance of companies and of industries and basically the resilience of society depended on factors that went beyond just a company's financial performance. And so rather than use a term like sustainability or something like that, they used the categories of environmental, social, and governance. It's still, it's, it's a good term. It's, it's accepted. It's the name of my think tank, but it's, I think it's sort of like naming something after three different food groups, you know, 
meats, starches, and dairy. When in fact, the goal of ESG overall is to have a balanced and healthy diet uh, that's sustainable for a company and for society and the environment at large. So I think uh, ESG in some ways uh, you know, represents a, a, a broader uh, purpose uh, behind it. And within the conference board's ESG center, we cover three areas and they're interrelated and they're overlapping. One is corporate governance. The other is the issue of sustainability. And finally, it's corporate citizenship and philanthropy. And I think uh, particularly as we're going through these multiple health uh, economic and social crises, it's becoming clear how all three of those areas, governance, sustainability, and philanthropy, uh, are all interrelated at companies. Are they ever? And uh, Paul, just to think about that in the current context, um, I think probably never in your lifetime, certainly never in mine, have we seen as much interest in, in the public media, but also in, in private uh, meeting rooms, um, about the role that business can play on social justice and responding to some of the issues that uh, we are now, as we're now in the middle of this uh, huge pandemic. So we'll come back to that though in just a couple of minutes. I wanna just bring out the irony of what you have just said in that historically, this goes back of course to a famous article by Milton Friedman, mm-hmm. companies have been conceived uh, by those who run the companies, sometimes by regulators, uh, observers like Milton Friedman, an economist at University of Chicago, as primarily in the business of doing business. Mm-hmm. Milton Friedman, you know this, uh, historically and famously said, uh, the business of business is stay, to stay in, in focusing on returning, um, well, returning capital to those who may have put it into the company in some way, and to stray from that is a huge mistake. It's socially irresponsible to quote Milton Friedman directly on that. So as ESG now has come to the fore, uh, is Milton Friedman rolling over in his grave at this point? Paul, what do you think? Well, I, I, I won't speak for his current state, but um, I, I do think, though, that actually, you know, going back to the Dutch East India Company some, you know, nearly 400 years or so ago, um, companies have always had a mission that I think went beyond um, their ju- just making money for their shareholders. And and even if you think they have, you know, they've got a societal permission to operate, right? And so there's always been a need for companies to operate, obviously, within the, the bounds of the law. But, you know, frankly, you've got to operate for some, some purpose, I think, that goes beyond um, making money, because if you don't, you're not going to have customers and employees. So I guess that's a way of saying there's really not a stark contrast. Sometimes there are tensions, but there's not a stark contrast between making money and trying to serve your employees, your customers, your communities, society at large, and and um, and frankly, do so in a way that's responsible for the environment. I think investors, we've seen this, as you pointed out, we've seen investors and all those other constituencies I mentioned really fully recognize increasingly how some of these, you know, serving not just the financial interest, but addressing these longer term uh, concerns um, is actually good, not only for risk management, but also for seizing opportunities for companies, thereby helping companies that are conscious of these broader issues uh, perform better. That's great. Paul, let's make this really tangible now. Sure. Uh, You work with the board at Time Warner. You work with many boards now through the conference board. Let's walk into a boardroom. And these Mm -hmm. days, 
Um, I, I've looked at a lot of these statistics. Boards are usually somewhere between 10 and 12 people. One insider, the chief executive, everybody else is what's often called a non-executive director uh, coming from all uh, sort of all walks of life. So we're in the boardroom. Let's make a Time Warner or a company you might pick. And if they say to you, Paul, uh, we know we're supposed to focus on ESG, tell us what we should do in the boardroom to bring those ideas to life. What would be your guidance? Um, so let me use the, because I, I think companies have for a long time focused on governance, right? That's, yeah. you know, ever, you know, going back to the General Motors principles, you know, of the late 80s, early 90s, companies have focused on governance and it became much more of a focus after Sarbanes-Oxley and the new stock exchange listing standards and, and so forth. Um, so let me sort of uh, broaden this to say, okay, we, we want to focus on, on the broader environmental and social issues. And by the way, the social issues are, <laughs> there are about a hundred different ones that you can put under the S bucket in, in ESG. So what, what should they be doing? I actually think that the first thing that they should do is to ask management um, about what management believes uh, sustainability means for that company. Ask management to consider what, what, what is your strategy for serving the long-term interests of the company, its investors, and its other stakeholders, employees, customers, consumers. That also serves society at large, and that also um, serves the environment, the well-being of the environment. So what management um, are, are, is your strategy? What are your specific initiatives that address that? Um, how is that different from what you're doing now, if at all, right? Um, and then you need to sort of, you know, management should come forward with that. And then the board, I think, should discuss it and adopt it or reject it or tailor it. However, I think that that's actually a, a good role for the board to play. Then I think the board needs to ask management, okay, that's great. That's what your strategy is. Now let's talk about how you embed sustainability, let's say, into the business. How do you build it into your strategic planning? How do you build it into your annual budgets? How do you build it into your M&A? How do you build it into your compensation schemes? All those sorts of things. Now, it's not like all of a sudden sustainability takes over everything that you're doing, but it should, just like risk management, because this is part of risk management, it's part of opportunity management. How do you, you know, it should be a component of pretty much everything that a company does. It should be embedded in the in the DNA of the company. So I think that's that's it. Now, and one thing that the board should then ask, okay, so you've got your plans, you're embedding in your processes, and then the board should say, this is, this is just ducky, you know? Now, how do you communicate that story authentically, reliably, and effectively to multiple constituencies? Um, and then the final question is, how can we help? Great. Paul, pause with me for just a second. I need to remind our listeners that you are listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I am your host, Mike Yusin, and our guest today is Paul Washington, Executive Director of the ESG Center at the Conference Board. Paul, back to you on what you were just referencing. My guess is, uh, in fact, I, I know this to be true, is that uh, a next conversation you would have with a board 
is how we translate intentions into metrics of outcomes. Mm -hmm. So we know if we're serving investors, we know what the total shareholder return is, TSR, right. market value for publicly traded firms. It gets fuzzier though, as we, as we think about uh, social justice and Black Lives Matter. So as a um, outside non-executive director says, Paul, I'm with you all the way, or maybe even the CEO, how the heck do we measure that and report it? What's your guidance on that? Well, it's it, there are two sort of separate questions here. One is, um, what are your specific goals in those areas, right? And, and the set of questions of what are your goals? Um, are they quantitative? Are they qualitative? Um, do you publish them internally? Do you publish them externally? And then do you report against them? And how do you do so? And do you compensate against them? So there's sort of the specific questions of what are the metrics we use to measure our progress in this sort of broader sustainability agenda? Then, of course, the um, maybe $64 trillion question is um, how do we determine whether it, it makes a difference to our to our financial performance and our, you know, our long-term financial performance. Yeah. And there, there's plenty of academic literature that indicates that a strong sustainability program that doing well in these other areas helps the company do well financially over time. Um, you know, we just recently put out a, a, a piece that talks about the um, five lessons from sustainability that you can use in um, in crisis management. Um, and there's, you know, there are reports we cite there that talk about the outperformance of, of uh, companies that focus on this area. We're coming out with a report this summer on how purpose-driven companies perform. And not always, but they often outperform um, their peers. But I think part of this is, you know, the courts and I think even investors will give companies some latitude if what they're doing in terms of these longer term initiatives um, makes sense. Now, if you, you cannot use environmental and social doing good as a shield for underperformance, right? But I think if you've got a story that you can tell your investors that is credible and that is fact supported by, yeah, we had these initiatives and we launched this new environmentally sustainable product or we improved our processes and we reduced our costs or something like that and helped the environment, investors will understand that and they will stay with you. They will give you some latitude on, on this. Um, so, you know, I think you do have to have, as much as you have some numbers, you have to have a credible story that then should be supported by your financial performance over over, over time. I think that's the best way to, to yeah. handle it because it's really hard. It's really hard. As you, all, as you know, you know, there are tons of studies about different governance practices that we all know are, are good, but when you try to you know, run the run the empirical analysis. There's not necessarily always a really strong correlation between that specific practice and corporate performance. But we actually know from being in the boardroom that certain practices do help a board perform better, which helps the company perform better. Really interesting. Let's parse it a little bit as follows: um, mm -hmm. telling the strategy story, vital for the chief executive, vital for the board chair, 
it's almost the most vital thing I, either or both can do when they sit down with uh, big investors. And mm -hmm. I know you've worked with uh, most of them. By big investors, we mean Vanguard, we mean BlackRock, uh, Fidelity, State Street, and so on. So telling the strategy story to them, if, uh, if it's a long-term strategy story and it's persuasive, will give the executive of, let's make it Time Warner, mm -hmm. a degree of latitude to take short-term costs uh, in the interest of long-term gains, say, on climate change. Right. That said, how would you line up the importance of doing that versus telling the strategy story to employees? You know the argument, you've, you've written the argument, <laughs> that employees who believe in the agenda and not just making shareholder value stick around more, they're less absent on Fridays, uh, they're more prepared to work hard. So of the two strategy telling audiences, in your own experience, which is more important, or maybe that's not the right way to put it, are they both important? Yeah, they, they are important. And I would throw in your customers and I would throw in your uh, your your regulators and I'd throw in the communities in which you operate. Um, I think one thing that's that's important is to make sure that it is fundamentally the same story with with each of your constituencies. But the way you tell it is a little different because the way you tell it to your employees is in a way that gives them an opportunity to become engaged in making that story a reality so that they become actively involved in advancing your broader sustainability initiatives um, and that they become really effective ambassadors um, for the company. That's not the same story with your investors where they're giving yeah. you their money and hope to get a return. They may speak well of you, you know, that you're, you're performing well, but it's not the same degree of engagement and, and um, ambassadorial role that your employees have. And your customers are, are also different. Uh, what you're trying to do there is you're trying to help them feel really good about buying from you or you're building brand loyalty. It's, it's akin to your uh, employees, but again, it's a, it's a different kind of dynamic. Um, one thing we're doing at the conference board this summer and through the autumn of next year is launching a what we call a working group that's actually focusing on exactly what you're talking about, which is how do you tell your story effectively to multiple constituencies? Because what we found is that whether your company's been at this for 10 months or 10 years, uh, the challenge remains, and the way to tell your story is not necessarily through a 150-page corporate social responsibility report that nobody really reads. Let's stay on that for a minute uh, or a couple minutes more because it really gets to the nub of uh, senior leadership in a company. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so the president, the maybe the chief operating officer, uh, in speaking to investors, uh, the, the, uh, the the big guys who have Mm -hmm. two or three percent of uh, the firm's equity in their own portfolio uh, there, there there's a method of speaking that right. uh, is developed cultivated we, we understand it i think less well understood though especially in the period of covid19 and diversity inclusion social justice and so on uh there's a it's a different art mm -hmm. to communicate persuasively your strategy story to Let's make it either employees or consumers. What advice would you have, again, to the chief executive who's about to face uh, 100,000 employees on an internal company um, um, webinar um, as he or she is about to lay off or furlough a bunch of employees? So just talk that through, if you would. 
Okay. Um, well, that's a really difficult situation. I thought you would just give me a, a sort of general question, but if you're actually doing it in the context of a, a layoff, I think the, the most important thing to do um, is, is to be honest and to respect the intelligence of your audience and then to be authentic. Um, Mario Cuomo, the former governor of New York, used to say that what the public wants is to see a public figure being private in public. Mm. They want to know, people want to know who you really are. You cannot just work off the talking points that are provided to you. You have to make the story your own. Um, your, your beliefs, your values have to come through in the message that you're delivering because people can tell when you're just reading from a teleprompter. Um, and so I think that that's, that's really important. The other thing I would um, say to someone who's delivering a message, and this, you know, we know this from shareholder engagement. Um, I think there's more of an opportunity to do it with employees and even customers is make sure that the conversation is two way. Yeah. This isn't just, um, you know, it's not just me speaking to you about um, what I've decided. So, for example, what companies are doing now, I think some of them are doing effectively in the area of um, racial equality and diversity, equity, inclusion, is the couple things. They're, they're listening before and as they speak to their employees. They're soliciting the stories from yeah. people. So frankly, it's not just, um, this goes beyond the furlough situation, the layoff situation. It's not just um, the CEO speaking. It's allowing other employees to share their stories. And then the CEO can step in and underscore them, reinforce them. And then it's not, it's the other thing is, this is not a one-time communication. It's also an ongoing dialogue on these issues because just announcing layoffs or furloughs or something, you know, you can't sort of say, okay, we've done that. I did a great job. I was all authentic. Everyone believed me. They, they bought the story or, you know, better yet, they, I've, I meant what I said and people really did believe it. You can't leave it at that. It's ongoing communication thereafter. And let's make that very pragmatic for those who might be listening, who are about to address employees or maybe talk to some of their customers and they're not necessarily practiced in the art of communicating mm -hmm. who you are authentically, to borrow your phrase there. What guidance would you have for somebody that comes to you and says, I need to get better at this. I didn't come into office doing this, but now I appreciate how vitally important it is. Uh, Paul, I guess that's an indirect way of um, what, what kind of coaching can one get <laughs> a more authentic speaker? What do you think? Um, I think it's just a couple of things. I think it's a little bit of practice, right? And practice with an audience you, you trust, whether it's your board or whether it's your senior management team or whether it's a few people um, that you work with to people whom you trust and who will give you really honest feedback as to how this, how this plays. Um, and then I, I think the other thing that you can do that's often really helpful is uh, to set expectations when you're talking. It's really effective when a leader says, I'm not particularly good at this. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm, you know, or you know, I've been in meetings where a senior executive would say, you know, I woke up just really grumpy today. So if, if I'm not on my best game here, please understand it. It has nothing to do with you in this room. So that's a, a different kind of circumstance, but being honest about your own shortcomings um, is a really effective way of building a bond with your audience because everyone knows that they've got their own. And then it, it sort of helps to set the bar at a level that you can hope, you know, you, you, you can meet. Well, I love the irony of the statement. Sometimes by admitting uh, weakness or humility, we actually gain more respect, not less. It, it's a exactly. ironic there. Our guest today is Paul Washington, Executive Director of the Environmental, Social and Governance ESG Center at the Conference Board. And we've been talking about some of the Conference Board research and, and Paul's own thinking and how companies have dealt with the coronavirus, uh, the movements for social justice and equity, and the challenges that lie ahead, especially for boardrooms, but also for senior uh, management. So, Paul, welcome back to our program. And I'm going to make this a little bit more personal for a few minutes. Uh, you began as an attorney. You worked uh, with the board at uh, Time Warner. You clerked at the US Supreme Court. So what drew you into what you're doing now for the conference board? Uh, it's a great question. Um, I, I think I think I'm pretty close to being uh, self-actualized as is possible. That this this was sort of an ideal job for me when uh, a friend of mine had been a predecessor in this organization, and he was leaving, and this job opened up. And I said, "Well, congratulations on your your move. Can I have your job, basically?" And uh, what what I love about this job is it combines um, a number of things that have been uh, passions of mine. So over the last many years uh, working for Time Warner and before that, I, I really cared about helping companies um, perform well um, in both the narrower sense of financial performance, but also um, perform well uh, in terms of their impact on society. And so it drew on my corporate career. I've taught law school uh, as an adjunct professor for 15 years. So it pulled on my academic background. I've served on about 25 nonprofit boards over the last 30 years. So it drew on my nonprofit experience because the ESG Center is a nonprofit think tank that focuses on issues of you know governance, sustainability, and corporate citizenship. So it kind of brought in the corporate side, the academic side, and um, the nonprofit side into one place and gave me a chance to have a, a really powerful, I hope, um, and positive impact on our members and on society at, at large. You know, we have a hundred, we have almost 180 members of our center right now, but we we have an impact through our research and our programming that goes much broader than that. So um, I'm, yeah, I, I'm kind of sitting here with what I feel like is an ideal job for me. Well, I'm going to just comment on that. Uh, we often talk in this program about fit. That is finding mm -hmm. a place in the world that really draws you out, where you can contribute the most. Often it's a bit of a lifetime journey to find a really good fit. It sounds like you have found that place indeed. And for you, it's become a calling. And thinking now uh, for a few more minutes about what you're doing with your, with your members. I know you've surveyed a number of mm -hmm. board members recently about how they are thinking about and responding to coronavirus and well beyond. So what, what are your, a couple of your findings there that listeners will probably want to hear about and maybe even take to heart? 
Sure. Um, I think the first thing is that boards have, uh, in the first phase, responded really quite well, I think, and in, in to the initial um, crisis and shutdown mode of, of the COVID um, pandemic. So um, we did a survey and asked um, general counsels and others who are really close to boards um, what their boards were focusing on. And we found that they focused on liquidity, which is important. That's all about survival. They focused on next, they focus on employees. That was the number two topic they focused on. And the third thing is that they focused on operations. We also found that boards and management were talking much more frequently um, and that they were really highly engaged, although in the outset um, of this, you know, really management had to, this was a crisis situation, so, so management had to run with the ball and the board was, you know, uh, keeping a close eye, offering advice, but wasn't sort of seizing the reins. That now actually needs to shift in several ways. First of all, boards have a lot of the areas that were lower down on the boards list are moving up, even as those three areas are still there at the top. So some of the things that boards hadn't paid, weren't paying that much attention to at the very outset, including, including customers, including um, data security. Um, you know, every company is now going to have a lot of healthcare information, uh, health and uh, employee information that they might not have had before that moves up to the top. And frankly, corporate citizenship and corporate social responsibility hadn't been a big focus at the outset. And in light of the social crisis right now in, in our country, that's got to move up. So boards are going to have a lot more on their plate than ever before. As we move through this, this isn't just watching management in action. This is the board um, taking more a stronger oversight role and a stronger decision-making role and making sure that they've got a whole new set, frankly, of reporting processes in place to, to hear about employee health and safety, to hear about customer, uh, you know, um, re-engagement with the company, all that sort of stuff, things that the board may not have had systems to be involved with. And then uh, on, on top of having a longer agenda, a stronger role in, in that agenda, boards also, um, you know, they're, they're going to need to figure out in the longer term what this means for their operations and what it means for their their company. So they've got the whole question of, you know, do we take this moment or these moments and do some sort of pivot with our with our business? So it's a really kind of, in some ways, overwhelming time for 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 boards, um, and that comes through in our in our survey results. A couple of thoughts picking up on what you've just said. Uh, number one. If you are a man or a woman of few words, this maybe is not the right moment. <laughs> right. A quiet and withdrawing, or to put that more affirmatively, uh, and we know this just going back through a whole range of crises as we've done our own research, that it's in a crisis or several now that have kind of all pulled together at the same time uh, to sit behind a desk, to not get out of your office, to not be visible to customers, uh, not to mention investors and and employees is a mistake. And I've often heard, just to cap that off, that in a period like this, there's no such thing as over-communicating. Agreed. And and investors, you know, just think about your your investors. A lot of something like 60% of companies or more, um, last time I looked, had withdrawn their earnings guidance. So that's, that's really important information that investors rely on. Um, you know, it's quarterly and annual guidance has been withdrawn. So there's a vacuum now. So investors are looking for uh, additional information to help inform them. They gave 
company's high marks at the outset, but now they're looking for more information at, in the time of reopening when there's also more uncertainty. So, and your customers, your employees, everyone's looking for sustained transparency. I would think of this, and not to minimize what's going on, in fact, to, to give a picture. Let's say you, you know how companies act when they've got an activist investor in their stock? They really gear up the communication machine with all these different constituencies, primarily with investors. This is a, a time of sustained transparency with multiple constituencies at a level that I, I don't think companies are necessarily always prepared for. Even if you've got a great corporate communications department, you may not be ready for this. And it's not just, you can't just hand it over to communications. This is a team effort to, to tell your story. And so I think this is a time if you're on a board, you sort of ask, are you ready to provide that sustained transparency during this time? And two quick thoughts on that before I move on. Number one, uh, statement, it's true, research has long supported it, that, that leadership has greatest impact. Your leadership, the board chair, the CEO, uh, the person in the middle of the ranks or on the front lines, they have greatest impact on the world when the world is more uncertain, simply put. Mm -hmm. so this is a time not to be shy about your leadership. This is right. just the opposite. To give our listeners a, an appreciation for what it means for half of the companies out there, uh, publicly traded companies, uh, say in the U.S., to have withdrawn their guidance is, is to me, stunning. It's probably mm -hmm. never, ever happened historically, except maybe in the fall of 08. So just to stretch out a little bit how significant uh, that fact is for how we think about business and the uncertainty it's suffering. Sure. Um, it's because, you know, guidance, you know, how you expect your, what you expect your earnings to be and companies all use all different sort of metrics, but your, what your earnings per share will be in the coming year is what investors then use to determine the value of your stock, right? So it's fundamental to the valuation of a company's stock price, right? And so if you put out good earnings guidance and says, hey, we think we're going to earn this much, then your investors have reason to invest in your stock. If you take that away, they've lost a key metric to figure out how to value your shares. Uh, is this stock worth buying? Should I hold it? Should I sell it? And it's an admission of the really overwhelming uncertainty that companies are facing, uh, particularly in the, it's called a short to medium term, uh, that so many companies stepped away from, from, from their guidance. Here's the incredibly ironic finding from a piece of research a couple of years ago. In looking at what leads some companies in a given year to push out their chief executive, one of the best predictors was failing to meet forecast or, or admitted mm -hmm. or broadcast expectations. Uh, even by a few cents per share. So if you're out of a range that uh, investment um, analysts consider acceptable, you're more likely to have your head on the block. And what's doubly ironic is if you exceeded expectations, not just fell below them, to exceed expectations is, is a hazard as well. Right. So, so <laughs> no, because because then you were, um, you know, it's actually not effectively communicating with your shareholders or you're you're playing them a little bit. If you consistently I mean, it's one thing to modestly um, under promise and overperform. But if you do it significantly over time, then you're not actually being forthright, perhaps with your with your with your investors or even with yourself. <laughs> 
So here's where I'm going with that. I'll, I'll put out the question. I'm going to take a, a quick uh, reset on our program here just so people know who they're listening to. The uh, question is, given the fact that there's so much uncertainty of, in the forecasting, let's make, make it earnings per share, do you think the next year or two is going to see an um, increase in the rate of turnover in the chief executive suite? So, Paul, while you're thinking about that, let me remind everybody that this, of course, is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Series Gem Channel 132. I'm Mike Yusim, your host, and our guest today is Paul Washington, Executive Director of the ESG Center at the Conference Board. So, Paul, back to the question, are more heads going to roll? What do you think? Um, I think if you're talking over the next couple of years, the answer is 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 yes. Um, part of that, there, there are a few things that can can uh, influence that. Part of that is, in some cases, the people are finding out that their CEOs may not have the um, the the skills, the you know the characteristics. What you were talking about, that sort of public facing ability to engage with multiple constituencies, they may not actually have that skill set that's needed right in in a time right. of crisis and that may be coming through the other thing that can happen is um if companies find that they need to fundamentally transition um whether it's through a transaction or through a shift in their business model because now many more things are virtual for example um you may find that uh you know just as anytime there's a business transition it's time for for someone new in the in the C-suite. The other thing is that we saw a new crop of CEOs come in in the wake of the financial crisis. And if you just look at the general tenure of CEOs, we're kind of getting to a point where it's kind of logical for there to be some turnover right now. So I think those three things may all play, um, which means boards need to be thinking about, even if you're reasonably happy with your CEO now, you probably need to be thinking about um, what, what you you know what you're looking for in the future uh, and I, I the final factor you know ceos after they maybe get through this initial crisis they may be burnt out they may in fact want yep. to do something else with their life this isn't just the board pushing people out this is ceos also determining it's time for me to do something different to turn that upside down for just a minute with the following proposition for those um most of those who are serving uh they may burn out and voluntary step voluntarily step uh, aside Having said that, though, I think I've yet to meet uh, the leader of almost any organization who uh, is ready to be fired or pushed out. <laughs> they want to do. They want. It's, it's a calling. They want to do a great job. Right. Um, so that said, combining your comments just now with those a little bit earlier on, for executives who are facing the greatest uncertainty, certainly for the, uh, in the lives of almost everybody and how to lead the company, where it's going, how, when the economy is going to come back. And you've said that part of the, um, kind of the, part of the equation now is for people indeed to step forward, to speak authentically, to reference themselves mm -hmm. uh, with humility, to get a hold of ESG issues. What would be your advice to, again, some of your members who say, um, I like my job, I want to stay in it, uh, to ensure in this period of uh, extreme uncertainty that they're going to be able to acquire the skill set required for getting through what we're going through right now. Paul, what do you think? Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a terrific question. I actually think that part of it is to recognize that you can continue to learn. Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, you open yourself up 
whether it's through a membership in the conference board for yourself or for your executives, you open yourself up to more information about what other companies are doing. Um, you, you open yourself up to listen to multiple constituencies, people you may not have engaged with necessarily before, additional layers of employees, real community engagement. And, you know, I'm thinking about, um, you know, a lot of a company's future may depend on their relationship with government and government regulations. And you may have been spending a fair amount of your time in Washington with people, policymakers there. Well, now your future may be determined at the state or local level or at the international sphere. So it's actually talking to those folks. So I actually think part of this is um, gathering the knowledge um, uh, to, 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 um, to help you do your job from places where you may not have looked, whether it's, whether it's a think tank, whether it's an industry association, whether it's through direct interaction with other constituencies. And then I, I think um, it's also approaching this with uh, some humility and some sense of humanity and recognize that, um, you know, you, not only you can still learn, you can get better, you can do this, but it may not actually be, to your point earlier, it may actually not be the best fit. So I think it's giving it your best shot and recognizing that there's a chance that it won't work out, but just do your level best. And if you think that it's not going to work out, then it's really your obligation to the company to help them find someone new. Because this isn't about you as the CEO. This is about the company. It's the company, the country, the world. <laughs> yeah. So, Paul, I've got two final questions, and then just as a heads up, you and I are going to sum up together. So okay. On this program, we have a tradition, and we're going to do it together here at the end, of reminding listeners of the couple points that you and I would really like them to hang on to from the discussion here. First question I have, though, before we get to that is this. Um, you've seen it, uh, I've seen it, um, a certain degree of cynicism or skepticism about company pronouncements that they're going to now begin to focus on climate or justice. And what advice would you have for a board and a top executive for um, avoiding the hypocrisy trap? Sometimes people hate hypocrisy more than oh. they disagree with. So uh, No, it, it, that you're dinged a lot more if you make a promise and you don't live up to it than if you don't make the promise at all. So I, I think uh, the key thing is if you're going to say something, just you've got to look when you're making the statement beyond the statement. You have to say, how are we going to back this up? And then you need to actually marshal resources to, to follow through and you have to stay on top of it. I think the other thing to, to do is to avoid over-promising in the outset to say, look, this is going to be a long-term process. We, we're going to learn along the way. We don't have all the answers right now, but these are the areas where the company can make a difference. So we can do it with our own employee base. We can do it through our uh, the suppliers we use. We can do it um, in terms of our public policy positions. So these are things we're all going to be reviewing to make sure that they are, in fact, consistent with the notions of economic opportunity and, um, and social justice. So I think... Uh, those, that's my that's my advice to someone. Well, and suppose uh, to make it now a very tangible question, somebody throws it back at you. Uh, we've got a significant number of layoffs, a certain number of furloughs. We're cutting all merit increases this year back to mm -hmm. zero. 
And I think the, the human mind out there, uh, I think we probably, we'd both subscribe to this, is that the pain has to be shared. Right. The message coming from the top to be credible about the need to tighten the belt. So if somebody says, uh, look, should I take a pay cut? Should I give up my stock options? Uh, uh, whether it's, uh, it, it could even be the chair of the board, but let's make it the CEO. What would be your advice to that person about sharing the pain in that sense? Uh, you, you should. If you think it's the right thing to do, you should do it. And we are seeing that um, uh, happen a, f a fair number of times. It's not universal. There are some industries that actually haven't touched uh, executive compensation thus far. But I think um, being in the same boat or even deeper in the boat <laughs> than yeah. your em employees is is important. Um, and there's another reason is that uh, just purely tactical self-interest for a public company that may be facing a vote, a say on pay vote, as they're called, on executive compensation next year. We've heard from investors that they're not just going to look to see how executive pay aligns with stock performance. They're going to look to see how invest executive pay aligned with how companies treated their employees. So investors um, are also looking at issues of of equity. Yeah, it's a great point. And just to then take that as a segue into a, a, a kind of a, a final, more general question. Do you think in looking at the events of the last 12 months with, with the coronavirus, uh, the several movements that we've discussed, that this is a moment a little bit like the crisis of 0809, that we will transcend and then kind of get back to normal? Uh, after 0809, it wasn't completely back to normal. Risk management was brought mm -hmm. into the, the management uh, lexicon. But do you see this as a, a fulcrum point, a, cat, a, a catalytic point, where leading companies, whether in the boardroom or in the corner office, after this is over in a couple of years, or at least as we've gotten through this period, is going to be fundamentally different? What do you think? I think it will vary to some extent by industry, by company, by size, by where they're located. But generally speaking, I do see this as a time of um, some significant change. I think it'll you'll see change in the composition in the boardroom. You'll see a change in the board's perception of their own role, that they're not only responsible for deciding certain things and overseeing certain things and advising on things, but actually more actively engaging. And I think you'll see a longer agenda of um, issues for boards to address that go beyond the normal operating and financial metrics. And I think when it comes to workforce, we know that companies are going to have more remote working. Uh, custom consumers um, uh, are going to be looking at both price in a way that they haven't in the past and sustainability issues in the way they haven't in the past. Uh, and investors are going to be looking at um, more factors now, including issues of things like uh, economic and racial equality in their own decision-making process. Uh, we saw before this pandemic that climate change had risen to the top of the consideration set in terms of long-term risk considerations for investors, I think they're going to be looking even more now at economic opportunity, economic equality, racial equality as risk factors in when they're making their investment decisions. Great way of summing up, in a sense, where we're coming from and where we're going. And with about one minute before you and I do our <laughs> after action review, uh, of course, you're talking to somebody who's in a business school, uh, 
what would be your advice to faculty and business schools training now the next generation of business managers? Uh, what would you advise us to do that we haven't done in the past? I think, uh, well, I don't, I can't tell you what might not have been done in the past, but I do think that the combination of um, the sort of regular academic empirical um, analysis that people are trained to do is just terrific. Um, but the more, frankly, the more real world experience that your students have, or the more real world stories that people are exposed to, the better. I think it's that combination of, you, you know, the theory, um, you may do your case studies and so forth, but then actually talking to people who have lived it, um, because that anecdotal um, uh, evidence is really quite valid and shouldn't just be discounted. Great. Paul, we got about two minutes. We're going to bounce back and forth. I'm going to ask you for a concluding line on what somebody should take away from this program. I'll offer one, get you to offer one more, and then we'll conclude with a final one from me. So looking back on our last 50 minutes or so of discussion, what would you like listeners to most remember for future action? Actually, it's 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 a little different from what we've covered, but I think it's some important lesson, right. which is in this environment of increased scrutiny and uncertainty, I think it's a time for increased humanity and humility uh, towards yourself and towards others. Um, be understanding, be forgiving. Um, this, this is a time where no one has all the answers. We're in this together. Yep. Quick one from me. I, I loved your reference to the uh, father of the current governor of New York. Uh, people want to see you for who you are publicly, but they also want to know who is the private you. Bring that into your communication, your, your presence with people. Paul, 15 seconds, one more for you and one more from you and then one more for me. Sure. Uh, this is a time to have an open mind and to learn and to listen to uh, people and constituencies who may not have uh, in the past. And that applies to senior executives as well as to board members. Oh, Paul, great minds think a lot. I'm going to end on the same point. It's a good time, even if you haven't done it before, to learn the next moves to succeed in the boardroom, to be an effective leader in the CEO office. So. That's it, Paul. I really appreciate your, your presence on the program. I know people can find you um, uh, directly or through the conference board. Is that the easiest way to learn more about you? Is there a particular place you'd send people? Just go to visit the conference board uh, website and look up the ESG Center. And a lot of our programs right now, especially um, relating to COVID, are all public. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, so we are here to serve our members and the general public. All right, Paul, I want to thank you for joining the program. I want to thank our listeners for joining us as well. If you've got a question about the show, you know where to reach us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. A special thanks uh, to our guest, Paul Washington of the Conference Board, yet again. I want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I am Mike Hussein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM, Channel 132. Be safe, be good. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 